Good morning. If you would please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 17. We continue to make our way through the book of 2 Samuel, and it's just been a rough couple of chapters for King David, hasn't it? Everything was going wonderfully for him, like all he touched seemed to turn to gold until chapter 11 when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband Uriah. That set into motion all sorts of consequences and repercussions of his sin. Not only does the child conceived in adultery die, but God also promises, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and that's exactly what we've seen transpire here over the past few chapters. Uh, It started with what Amnon did to Tamar. That was followed by what Absalom did to Amnon. That was followed by Absalom's exile, which was followed by Absalom's return to Jerusalem, but not to reconcile with his father David, but to plan a rebellion against him. That rebellion then drives David out of Jerusalem into exile, where he's basically running for his life. And then in chapter 16, which we covered last time, things just keep getting worse for David uh, from the frying pan into the fire uh, with Ziba deceiving him, uh, Shimei cursing him, and Absalom humiliating him. And so as things stand at the end of chapter 16, uh, David is on the run, he is weak, He is vulnerable. Absalom is in full control of the kingdom. Absalom's power keeps increasing. And remember, worst of all for David, best of all for Absalom, Ahithophel. Ahithophel, David's former close friend and counselor, is now working for Absalom. Remember how chapter 16 ends, verse 23. In those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. That guy, that guy is on team Absalom, and so all hope seems lost for David. Like his house and his kingdom look like they're surely going to come to an end. But then we remember, and surely David would come back to this over and over in his weakest moments. Then we remember the promise that God once made to him all the way back in chapter 7. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And we remember that the God who made that promise always keeps his promises. So even as we begin chapter 17, we've got this feeling, in hope we believe against hope, that God's about to do something here for the house and the kingdom of David. So let's start by just reading the text. Hear the word of the Lord from 2 Samuel 17. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he he is weary and discouraged and 
throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you, from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for the multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we will drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom, so both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man of Bahurim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Hezephel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went home to his own city.
He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now, Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra, the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Makir, the son of Amiel from Lodibar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey and curds, and sheep and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, The people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here's our game plan for this morning. Uh, First, I'll just talk us through the narrative to make sure we all understand what's happening here in terms of the people and the places and the events, because after all, this is history. But then we'll take a step back and think big picture uh, to make sure we all understand what's happening here in terms of God and what he's doing, because after all, this isn't just history. It's also theology. And so let's start in verse 1. Moreover, moreover, it's one of those words that I know exists in the English language, but I've like never actually used it in conversation. Uh, It's a word that tells us that what's about to come is building off of something that just came right before. Right? That is, whatever's about to happen in chapter 17 is building off of what just happened at the end of 16. And so we should remind ourselves of the last thing that happens in 16. Uh, Absalom, he's just declared himself king. He's moved himself into the capital city of Jerusalem, into the king's palace, and he is looking to strengthen his grip on the throne, to secure his power. And so chapter 16, verse 20 He goes to the new counselor that he just acquired at the trade deadline, Ahithophel. Give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel's advice, his counsel to Absalom, is to take for himself all of his father's concubines and to do it in the sight of all Israel. So that everybody would know, for sure, that Absalom was now king, that Absalom was now in charge. Yeah, it's immoral. It goes against God's word. And so James would tell us that this is not wisdom from above, but that which is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. But it does accomplish the goal. David has been publicly shamed and humiliated. All Israel will hear that you have become a stench to your father. And thus Absalom's grip on the throne is further established. And so end of chapter 16, right? Ahithophel gave that counsel which Absalom followed. Now going into chapter 17, moreover, so in addition to that council, building off of that council, well, Ahithophel has more counsel for Absalom. This is how you can further secure your power. This time it's by completely eliminating David. Like you've shamed him, you've humiliated him, now you're going to entirely destroy him. Well, that council is in verses 1 through 3. 
First, Ahithophel wants to choose for himself 12,000 men. Not an incredibly large army by the standards of the day, but uh, certainly a much larger force than uh, the small band of soldiers that David has with him. And so Ahithophel wants to take those 12,000 and pursue David tonight without any further delay. You say, what's the, what's the rush? Why the urgency? Well, look at verse 2. He is weary and discouraged. Remember that David and his men, they had to rush out of Jerusalem. They've been on the run with little in terms of food and supplies. They don't really know where they're going. They don't really know what they're doing. So let me get him now while he's weak. And I will strike down only the king. Basically, I'm only going for David here. He's my only target. It's going to be like this surgically precise strike. And once I kill David, all of his supporters, well, they're not going to have any more cause to support. Uh, They're going to quickly come over to your side. The bottom line, your enemy is going to be dead. You'll be firmly entrenched as the king. And you won't even have to fight this long, costly war. This seems smart. Now, my understanding of, like, tactics of war comes uh, primarily from playing Risk growing up. Right? You've got to build up Kamchatka and attack North America through Alaska. That's basically all that I know. Uh, but even I can see the wisdom here. He's striking while the opposition is weak. He's got a very specific mission in mind, right? He's just trying to take out David. And he's attacking at night. And so there's an element of surprise here. This seems like a good plan. And the narrator even tells us so. Because remember the last thing that we read at the end of chapter 16, and the original text has no chapter breaks. And so that's the verse that comes literally right before Ahithophel gives his plan. So, uh, Ahithophel is brilliant. His counsel is great. And now here is Ahithophel's counsel. And later the narrator even tells us. Look at verse 14. He describes the strategy as the good counsel of Ahithophel. This is good advice. And so we're not surprised to read in verse 4, the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Absalom, just do exactly what Ahithophel tells you. This is good advice, and David's going to be gone, and the throne is yours to keep. But then, Absalom does something that kind of catches us by surprise. He calls in Hushai the archite. Let's hear what he has to say. You remember Hushai the archite? We first met him back in chapter 15. He comes to meet David on the Mount of Olives. He shows his support for David. And David tells him to do two things. Number one, I want you to infiltrate Absalom's inner circle, like as a a double agent, as a mole. Go and pretend to be on his side so that you can somehow defeat the council of Ahithophel. And number two, I want you to keep your ears to the ground. If you get any valuable intel, send it back to me by my secret messengers, Ahimaaz and Jonathan. Then in chapter 16, you might remember that we skipped over these verses last week. We'll come back to them now. Look at verses 16 and following. 
there's this kind of fascinating exchange that happens when Hushai tries to infiltrate Absalom's inner circle, just like David told him to. When Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? Referring to David. And Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Now we know what Hushai's motives are here. To become a mole within Absalom's regime. So we read those words that he says there and we kind of suspect that there's a little bit of double meaning there. Long live the king, long live the king. Absalom hears that as praise for himself. But who's the real king? Well, it's King David. For whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen his I will be. Again, this is, this is tickling Absalom's ears, but well, who has the Lord actually chosen to be king? And who did the men of Israel rightly anoint to be king back in 2 Samuel chapter 5? It's King David. And so as I have served your father, well, loyalty to David, well, so I will serve you in the same way. That is, I'm going to serve you by being loyal to my father, David. I mean, I've given this man an Oscar or something for this performance. This is brilliant. And so now we're back in chapter 17. In this kind of shocking turn of events, it's this Hushai, double agent Hushai, from whom Absalom now seeks advice. That's strange. Because it's not like they're unsure about Ahithophel's advice, like, ah, I don't know. Or like the vote's divided and they need a second opinion or something. No, the text clearly says that they were all in support of Ahithophel's advice. Now maybe Absalom is thinking that in an abundance of counselors there is safety and that's why he goes to Hushai. But you remember earlier the whole thing with the concubines, that advice well, Absalom doesn't seek Hushai's opinion then. So this is strange. But whatever the case, Absalom calls in Hushai. Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? Verse 7. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. That takes a lot of guts. <laughs> Ahithophel is renowned for his wisdom, like everybody, even kings, right? Everybody respects and esteems Ahithophel and his counsel. And here's this nobody Hushai. Like, who is this guy? He comes and he says it. Ahithophel's advice, not good. You can almost picture the look on Absalom's face. Like, what do you, what do you mean it's not good? So Hushai elaborates. At first, Hushai says, Ahithophel is vastly underestimating David's strength. I mean, does Ahithophel have any idea who he's dealing with here? 
when he's painting this, this picture of David as this weak and weary old man. But verse 8, you know, Absalom, you know that your father and his men are mighty men. And that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Like Absalom, has, has your father ever lost a battle? You know what he's like. He's a mighty man. And, and his guys, I mean, Joab and Abishai, those guys are animals. Like they're not going to go down easily. Ahithophel is vastly underestimating David's strength. And second, Hushai says, Ahithophel is vastly underestimating David's smarts. He's an expert in war. He's no dummy. He's going to hide himself in a pit. He's going to hide himself in a cave. It's not like Ahithophel is just going to be able to roll up and take him out. And here's the thing, Absalom. When Ahithophel and his guys, when they go after David, and when they start suffering setbacks and casualties because they've underestimated his strength and his smarts, when they can't find David and they just keep getting picked off by Joab and friends, your army's morale is going to plummet. Verse 10, even the valiant man, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. And at that point, well, you've given David the upper hand. The bottom line, it is way too risky to do what Ahithophel is suggesting. Now Absalom is hearing all of this, and you can kind of picture him kind of nodding slowly. But Anybody can poke holes in someone else's plan. You got a better one, Hushai? Well, as a matter of fact, I do. And this is where Hushai's brilliance just shines forth. Because whereas Ahithophel knows military strategy, Hushai knows Absalom's heart. He knows Absalom's vanity, his obsession with his image. It's kind of like what Teddy Roosevelt's daughter once said about him, my father always wanted to be the corpse at every funeral, the bride at every wedding, and the baby at every christening. That's Absalom. And so look at how Hushai just tugs at Absalom's heartstrings here in his speech. It is a, it is a speech full of just like elaborate word pictures and, and flowery rhetoric and reasoning. It's over three times as long as Ahithophel's speech. And every single word of it is meant to play to Absalom's pride. You're so vain, you probably think this counsel is about you. Verse 11. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you. From Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. Hushai knows exactly the right buttons to press there, right? You, you, you compare that to Ahithophel's plan. Look again at Ahithophel's speech. Ahithophel says, let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him, and I will strike down only the king. Whoa, 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 Absalom. Why are you going to let 
Ahithophel. Mr. Pocket Protector over there, why are you going to let Ahithophel get all the glory? No, you, you, Absalom, you deserve the glory. You should be at the head of Israel's armies. You should be the one marching in victory. And Absalom, don't just take a small group of soldiers. Take with you all the men from Dan to Beersheba. Like that's referring to all of Israel. Like can you picture it, Absalom? How glorious is that photo op going to be? You in your chariot at the heads of the army of all of Israel. Like the sand by the seashore. Wow, can you imagine that, Absalom? Don't just go for a quick surgical strike. No, take your time. Mobilize the entire army and go all out and completely wipe out the opposition. That and only that would be a tour de force and a demonstration of power befitting an awesome king like you, Absalom. As the dew falls on the ground, like you're going to be everywhere. David's not going to be able to hide anywhere. They're just going to be overwhelmed by your power when you crush them like bugs. If they hide in the city, verse 13, we'll just pull the city down. Yeah, Absalom, your father is a great warrior. But Absalom, Absalom, here's your chance to prove to everyone that you're even greater. Now you see how Hushai just like massages his ego so perfectly. He, he just provokes Absalom's pride just masterfully. And wouldn't you know it? It works to a T. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Man, keeping score at home, it's a stunning upset. This is Buster Douglas beating Mike Tyson. Final score, Hushai one, Ahithophel zero. Hithophel's council being defeated, and it's like, no one saw that one coming, right? Well, yeah, but you might remember that back in chapter 15, it's what David prayed for. Look at 2 Samuel 15, verse 31. It was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom, and David said, O Lord, please turn the council of Ahithophel into foolishness. And so God answers David's prayer here in chapter 17, but maybe not in the way that David originally intended. Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Like that doesn't actually happen in the sense that Ahithophel's advice was good. It was sound advice. Like at the level of Ahithophel, his counsel was not foolishness. But God does answer the prayer in the sense that Absalom rejects the good advice and counsel of Ahithophel and instead goes with Hushai. And so at the level of Absalom, the counsel of Ahithophel is turned into foolishness. Yet another example of God answering better than we ask. Of God being able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. But the story's not done. 
Because remember David's assignment for Hushai? There were, there were two parts. And the second one was to relay back to him any important intel. And here's some really important intel. And so Hushai sends the message. Here's my plan. Here's Ahithophel's plan. And just in case they end up going with Ahithophel's plan, and it's not entirely clear whether Hushai was there when Absalom decided to go with his plan. But just in case they go with Ahithophel's plan and they attack tonight, David, you need to cross over the Jordan River ASAP. And so that elaborate spy network that they set up earlier, now that's put into play here, Hushai sends this female servant, presumably under the guise of uh, fetching water or something like that. Uh, He sends her to go to where Ahimaaz and Jonathan were waiting, outside of Jerusalem. But then somewhere along the way, one of Absalom's men sees them and So Hemaz and Jonathan, they they run to the house of a man loyal to David, and they hide in his courtyard in his well. And the man's wife, we'll just call her the woman at the well, uh, she covers the well. She uh, scatters some grain over it and says, oh, look at that. We're just drying out our barley here. Nothing to see here. And when Absalom's henchmen, they come by, looking for Jonathan and Hemaz, well, the woman sends them out in the wrong direction, and that gives them enough time to get the intel to David. And so David, with this information now in hand, he and his men cross the Jordan River, certainly not an easy task by any means, but they make it safely to the other side. They lose not one man, and from there they go up to Mahanaim, and they settle down there, and it's from Mahanaim that they're going to fight the war against Absalom's forces in chapter 18. A few other details that uh, we ought to discuss kind of at the end of the chapter here. Uh, First look at verse 23. Uh, Ahithophel sees that his counsel isn't ultimately followed, and so he goes and he hangs himself. I don't think this is him just kind of feeling slighted and, oh, you know, throwing himself a big pity party here like the kid who storms off because he doesn't get his way. No, I think this is him seeing the handwriting on the wall. Like in his wisdom, he's wise enough to know that this is going to be disastrous for Absalom. David's going to win. David's going to reestablish his throne. And when he does, Ahithophel is toast. Like he's almost certainly going to be executed as a traitor. And so he sits down, he does the math, and... He decides he would rather go out this way than with a public execution. The second thing to notice is in verses 27 through 29. You've got this unlikely cast of characters that comes to bless David and his men. You've got Shobi, the son of Nahash. If you remember back to chapter 10, there was a king there named Hanan, the son of Nahash. He's the guy who cut off the beards of David's men. This is probably his brother. You've got Makir, the son of Amiel, and if that name sounds familiar, it's because that's the guy who gave refuge to Mephibosheth before David gave Mephibosheth a seat at his table. And then you've got Barzillai. Uh, We don't really know who he is at this point, but we find out later that he is just a very rich old man. And so it's quite an odd mix of characters here, right? You've got a, a brother of a former enemy, You've got a friend of the house of Saul, and you've got some rich old guy. But it's these guys who kind of come together here 
and bless David and his men, not just with lots and lots of food, but also just really practical things like beds and pots and pans, right? Things that they're going to need to settle down in their new homes in Mahanaim. So there's a chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 17, the uh, people, places, and events of the chapter. David and Absalom, Hushai and Ahithophel, Ahimaaz and Jonathan, Shobi, Machir, and Barzillai, Jerusalem, Mahanaim, the well in the guy's courtyard, and all the events that tie together those people and those places. But remember, this isn't just a history lesson. This is God's word. And so this is ultimately a narrative that speaks to who God is and how he works so that his people who read it might hope in him. For whatever was written in former days, including 2 Samuel 17, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So let me leave you now with two takeaways from this story, uh, two ways in which this chapter of scripture encourages us as God's people to have hope. First takeaway, number one, God's sovereignty is often behind the scenes. God's sovereignty is often behind the scenes. Uh, We know, because the Bible so clearly teaches it, we know that God is sovereign. That is, he ordains whatsoever shall come to pass, like everything that's ever happened in history, everything that's currently happening, and everything that will ever happen until the end of time, like all of it is decreed and brought about by sovereign God. Now, sometimes that sovereignty is kind of like front and center on display in human history. Think of when God parts the Red Sea. Boom. Or God sends the plagues. Or God brings the walls of Jericho crashing down. But those extraordinary, miraculous, visible displays of his sovereignty, those are the exception rather than the rule. Far more often, God's sovereignty works quietly, behind the scenes, if you will. I mean, think about what happens in this chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 17. This is a chapter full of ordinary human events. There's an advisory meeting. Two different courses of action are proposed. One is chosen, one is not. And there's a network of informants. They're trying to pass along a message, and that's almost foiled entirely when they're spotted. But then the two spies hide in a well until the coast is clear. And the chapter ends with this kind of hodgepodge of just generous supporters coming to bring food and supplies to some refugees. Like, it's also ordinary. You've got questions and answers. You've got arguments and logic. You've got decisions and choices. You've got hiding and seeking. You've got food and furniture. Like, all of this happens according to the sovereignty of God. But because these events are so ordinary, because God is working so behind the scenes, it can be easy for us to forget. 
But then the narrator graciously throws in that short little sentence at the end of verse 14 to remind us of what's really going on here. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. That sentence reminds us, the forgetful readers that we can be, that sentence reminds us that we're supposed to view every single seemingly ordinary thing that happens in this chapter through that lens of God's sovereignty. Whether it's Absalom seeking a second opinion from Hushai when he's already heard the take it to the bank counsel of Ahithophel. Or it's Absalom ultimately going with Hushai's plan over Ahithophel's. Or it's the henchmen being unable to find Ahimaaz and Jonathan. Or it's the random dudes at the end of the chapter bringing exactly what David and his men needed at just the right time. Like, all of it happens according to God's sovereign will. Now, that doesn't mean that, like, Absalom really wanted to go with Ahithophel's plan, but I just can't, I just have to choose Hushai's plan. No. Absalom does exactly what he wants to do, but at the same time, simultaneously, it remains true, Proverbs 21.1, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Takeaway number one, God's sovereignty is often behind the scenes. Friends, if you are anything like me, You understand the sovereignty of God, and you believe in the sovereignty of God, and you proclaim the sovereignty of God. But then in day-to-day life, because day-to-day life can be so ordinary, because God's sovereignty can be so behind the scenes, like you just often forget about the sovereignty of God. That's why we get so anxious and fearful about things because we're forgetting about the sovereignty of the one who calls us to trust him. That's why we're so quick to try to figure out things on our own and so slow to pray because we're forgetting about the sovereignty of the one who calls us to cast our burdens on him. But then we read a narrative like this. And we are reminded so directly of the sovereignty of God behind everything. The ordinary things, the regular conversations and decisions and events of life. And that brings us incredible comfort and, Romans 15, 4, hope. Knowing that the God who is for us, The God who has promised to work all things together for good. The God who has promised to never leave nor forsake his children. Well, that God is working in all things at all times. Like he is at work, whether you can see it or not, in that situation in your job that has been troubling you so much. And he is at work, whether you can see it or not, in all the difficult trials that you've been going through in this season. He's at work, whether you can see it or not, in every little detail of your life. 
So in the story of your life, like there's plenty of verse 14s kind of just tucked away in the text. For the Lord had ordained two, fill in the blank. We might miss them, but they're there. Because takeaway number one, God's sovereignty is often behind the scenes. Takeaway number two, God's anointed will triumph. God's anointed will triumph. Let's go back to something that I said at the very beginning. It looks really bad for David. At the beginning of the chapter, it looks really bad. And even though it might look like this is the end for David's house and his kingdom, we just need to remember the promise that God made to him back in chapter 7 that his house and his kingdom will be established forever. And if we remember that, then we realize that this battle isn't ultimately Absalom's might and Ahithophel's wisdom versus David in his weakness and vulnerability. Because if that were the case, maybe we'd put our money on Team Absalom. But no, this is Absalom and Ahithophel versus God and his anointed. And when we think about it that way, well, that's not really a fair fight at all. Like even Ahithophel, even Ahithophel with all of his wisdom, his understanding, his counsel, well, Proverbs 21.30 has a word of warning for Ahithophel's no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The more we work our way through the books of Samuel, the more I'm convinced that Psalm 2 is the lens through which you have to view pretty much everything that happens in David's life. Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Absalom and Ahithophel, they take counsel together. Absalom and Ahithophel, they rage and they plot. Absalom and Ahithophel, they set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. But Psalm 2, 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. God laughs because even as all of this raging and this plotting against him is happening, he ordains to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel by using this random guy, Hushai. God laughs as he turns Absalom's wicked heart like a stream of water. God laughs because no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel, even Ahithophel, can avail against the Lord. God laughs as his enemies rise up against him in vain. Like as he's orchestrating everything that happens in this chapter that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. You might think, well, it's all well and good that God's anointed will triumph. That David's going to turn out victorious over Absalom and Ahithophel. But what comfort and hope does that provide me? 
that's where we need to remind ourselves that King David, as the Lord's anointed, he is a picture, a foreshadowing, a type of the one to come. The greater David, the one whom Psalm 2 is really about, the Lord's anointed, Jesus. Like David, the rulers would take counsel together against Jesus. Not Absalom and Ahithophel, but the Sanhedrin and the Romans, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Herod and Pontius Pilate. They all raged and plotted against him. Like David, things weren't looking too great for Jesus as it seemed to the undiscerning eye that darkness might just triumph. But like David, Jesus' enemies ultimately stood no chance because Jesus did exactly what he came to do in dying for the sins of his people that sinners like you and me could be reconciled to a holy God. And like David, Jesus' chief betrayer Wise enough, perhaps, to see the handwriting on the wall, he goes and he hangs himself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, Judas departed, and he went and he hanged himself. Ahithophel, Judas, a picture of all who set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed and their ultimate destruction. So this narrative, and this narrative in pointing out for us and demonstrating for us how God's anointed David is going to triumph over his enemies, well, it points us centuries past King David and shows us how God's anointed Jesus would also triumph over all his enemies. Not just Pilate and Herod, but sin and death and the grave. And that's something in which all of God's people here today can find comfort and hope. In 2 Samuel 17, God's sovereignty is often behind the scenes. And God's anointed will triumph. Those are two truths that can comfort the souls of all God's elect and give us hope. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this chapter that particularly draws our attention to your sovereign care for us. Father, give us, your people, a deeper trust in that sovereignty that it might reflect how we live for your glory. We love you. We trust you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.